The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord and then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron the priest are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons the priests shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If the offering is a burnt offering from the flock, from either the sheep or the goats, you are to offer a male without defect. You are to slaughter it at the north side of the altar before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall splash its blood against the sides of the altar. You are to cut it into pieces, and the priest shall arrange them, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to bring all of them and burn them on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If the offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, you are to offer a dove or a young pigeon. The priest shall bring it to the altar, wring off the head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He is to remove the crop and the feathers and throw them down east of the altar where the ashes are. He shall tear it open by the wings, not dividing it completely, and then the priest shall burn it on the wood that is burning on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. morning church. Uh, it's lovely to see about half the church is with us. I know half my family is at home sick and I suspect that is true of many of the families uh, at Vic Park. Well, we have our second uh, introduction to the book of Leviticus this week and I promise next week uh, we start properly in the book of Leviticus. And I want to begin with an observation that there are two axioms. Now, that is a uh, fancy word uh, for fundamental principle. Two truths that without which we will never understand ourselves, our heart, the Bible, the world, or existence itself. 
Two truths that without which you'll never understand yourselves, your heart, the world, scripture, or existence herself. And these two truths are ingrained, baked in, printed on the surface of our world and creation because they reside and they flow out of God's own heart, flowing from creator to creature. And these truths in and of themselves are not binaries. They are utterly compatible. In fact, if you look hard enough, squint, they are two sides of the same coin. But they are truths that we experience in tension with one another. In fact, you could say, if you want to kind of depict it graphically, that these two truths stand as giant pillars at opposite poles of existence that kind of overarch our experience of life itself. And the storyline of the Bible, the Scriptures, which is ultimately the storyline of reality itself, is how human beings live between these two poles. And in fact, if you zoom in, you would see that the gospel truth, the news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and rule, is the tightrope between these two poles. Well, I've talked about these enough now, and maybe I've lost you already. So let me tell you what they are, if that's all a little too abstract. Let me give you your, your, my, the universe's two axioms, fundamental principles. Number one, God is love. That God has forever existed in perfect, love-filled relationship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That the creation is the overflow of God's love. He didn't make the universe arbitrarily. He didn't make it out of some need, some lack, some desire to be worshipped or adored. He made us because he loves us. He sustains us. He holds every fiber of our being, every atom together because of his affection. John tells us God is love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Number one, God is love. Number two, God is holy. God is light. He is pure, radiant, spotless, in whom there is no shadow of darkness. He is transcendent, infinite, And to try and reclaim a very much abused word in our culture, he is definitionally awesome. God is love, God is holy. And those truths have no tension within the heart of God himself. There's no competition, no lack of harmony between those two things. Between his love and his holiness, his purity, his beauty, his heart and his might. But coming to you and me... There is a tension there, that we as fallen, as broken, as sinful, unholy human beings, we feel a tension sharply. It's God's love that calls us towards him, but because of our lack of holiness, that same love that pulls us towards him, pulls us towards our destruction. 
and our annihilation. God's love draws us, but His holiness and our lack, His purity and our filth, His spotlessness and our defilements means that without intervention, without protection, without shield, God's love draws us to our doom. His affection towards our obliteration as the white-hot holiness of God meets the bleak, dark soul of man. And this tension between those two forms the very lifeblood of the book of Leviticus. So much so that you could say if, if the book of Leviticus were written in binary code, zeros being love and ones being holiness, it would be a book of one zero one one zero one one love holiness love holiness holiness love 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 holiness holiness love. But here's the truth. My guess is is that when most of us read the book of Leviticus, we see a whole lot of ones, a whole lot of holiness but almost no zeros, no love. There's the holy place, the most holy place, the holy fire, the holy food, the holy implements, the holy altars. Be holy as I am holy. 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 I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Leviticus 152 times speaks of God's holiness. I think that's a record in the Bible of all its 66 books. If we were dusting Leviticus for fingerprints, holiness would be the prime suspect. But love, love, well, as the black-eyed peas prophetically sang in 2000 and something or other, where is the love? Because aside from chapter 19's kind of classic Love your neighbor as you love yourself, which we'll get to in due course. Aside from that chapter, love is nowhere else seen explicitly in the other 23 chapters of Leviticus. There's no call to love God, and strikingly, there's no mention of God's love for his people. So if I am right, and Leviticus is about, in equal measure, love and holiness, how so? And if so, how do we have our eyes open to see love? Well, I think there's two ways we can do that, and they work in tandem, so they're going to be our two points this morning. Number one, we need to understand the background of Leviticus. And number two, with a keen eye, we need to look at the content of Leviticus. So background of Leviticus and content of Leviticus. Now, I must say that we do have a whole sermon on the background of Leviticus already. You could find it, if, you, if you're that way inclined, on Spotify or YouTube or any kind of podcast provider. Just kind of look for Vic Park Presbyterian. It's a sermon from the, the 14th of August. It's called The Intro to the Intro to Leviticus. Now, I'm not vouching necessarily for the quality of the sermon, but I will vouch for its value. It does help set the scene. And if you were there, you will recall that, that for that sermon, we go all the way back 
the kind of the primordial beginning, Genesis chapter 1, first page of the Bible, first page of existence itself. We see God walking in harmony in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. And then we see how Adam and Eve ruin that perfection of how we, Adam and Eve, and along with them, humanity, are cast out of God's presence. And that God kind of ascends into the heavens, disappears for a time. And then we see thousands of years later that God appears to Abraham. He launches a new rescue plan of how he's going to bless the world through Abraham's offspring. And then we fast forward a few millennia, or about seven minutes if you're listening on the 14th of August, to the surprise revelation in Exodus, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. So we're in the third book of the Bible, second book of the Bible, Exodus. Right before this first page of Leviticus, the last page of Exodus, we hear that God is going to return to his people that he is going to join his people in their wilderness wanderings as they head towards the promised land. If you've got a Bible, turn to chapter 40, verse 34 of Leviticus. Chapter 40, verse 34. Thank you, Andrew. Exodus, you're not going to find Leviticus 40. If you can, get rid of that Bible. Exodus 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's portable temple tent, if you don't know the language. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting, which is a bit confusing. That's another name for the tabernacle. It's all a bit confusing. He can't enter this temple tent because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord. So the first time since Genesis 1, the glory of the Lord had touched earth to reside, fills the tabernacle. And again, it's kind of humdrum because we've heard it if you've been in church a thousand times. But it is quite staggering, isn't it? God, omnipresent, God of the universe, fills it from the very heights, heavens above, depths below. Now, in a particular concentrated form, lives in a tent in the wilderness. And why? Well, it's not, just to be clear, it's not because he needed to. He didn't need an Airbnb for the weekend. In fact, what we find when we read Exodus and later on Ezekiel and then later on the book of Hebrews is that this temple tent, this tabernacle, is like a scaled down kind of mini budget version of his true heavenly temple. And so he has about as much need to live in the tabernacle as Queen Elizabeth II has need to live in Legoland's Duplo version of Buckingham Palace. So why does he? He does it because he loves his people. Because he draws near to them. He longs, not out of lack, but out of superabundance of love, longs to dwell amongst his chosen, his special people. And I think we have a, a, um, a kind of unusual, but I think really an insightful window into the nature of God's love for his people. Believe it or not, by looking at building material. 
Uh, turn to Exodus 35 now, so a few pages back if you've got one. Uh, let me set the scene for you. So God has just given and about to give instructions as to how this temple tent will be built, given it to Moses, and then Moses will give it to the people. But they are in literally the middle of nowhere. So where are they going to get the raw materials? Remember, middle of nowhere in the desert, there's no Bunnings 10 minutes down the road. You can't get screwdrivers, cement spotlights, or a sneaky snag. So Moses asks the people for the furnishings, and they provide. So verse 22, that's the little number of chapter 35, the big number. All who were willing, men and women alike, came and brought gold, jewelry of all kinds, brooches, earrings, rings, and ornaments. They all presented their gold as a wave offering to the Lord. Everyone who has blue, purple, or scarlet yarn, or fine linen, or goat hair, or ramskin dyed red, or the other durable leather brought them. Those presenting an offering of silver or bronze brought it as an offering to the Lord, and everyone who had acacia wood for any part of the work brought it. Every skilled woman spun with her hands and brought what she'd spun, blue, purple, scarlet yarn, or fine linen. And all the women who were willing and had the skill spun the goat hair. The leaders brought onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastplate. They also bought spices and olive oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. Okay, so let's be honest, even if there was a Bunnings 10 minutes down the road, they're not actually getting any of that, are they? This is kind of exquisite, costly ornamentation and, fur and furnishing. Okay, the tabernacle was beautiful, Matt, kind of, so what? Well, bear with me, let's now turn to Ezekiel. Okay, so Ezekiel is a prophet living about a thousand years after Moses, maybe the Bible's most interesting of prophets, and I want us to turn to chapter 16 of Ezekiel. Right, only a few more flips this morning, just keeping on your toes, not you napping now. Ezekiel 16, and what Ezekiel does in this chapter is he retells the story of God's people, Israel, the story that we're really in the thick of in the book of Leviticus. And he, but he uses a very surprising image. And in fact, if you've never come across this chapter, it may well shock you, his imagery. So chapter 16, verse 4, talking about the origins of Israel as a metaphor. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by, and I saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew and developed and entered puberty. Your breasts had formed and your hair had grown. You were stark naked. Later I passed by, and when I looked at you, I saw that you were old enough for love. I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you 
declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put sandals of fine leather on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck, and I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was honey, olive oil, and finest flour. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on the account of your beauty, because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. Here we have very starkly, vividly, the story of God and his people as a romance of God seeking his beloved. Not only that, but did you see how God describes the adorning of his bride? And did you pick up the parallels with the tabernacle? There's gold and silver, necklaces and earrings, blue, purple, scarlet yarn, fine linen and olive oil. The furnishings of the tabernacle are the furnishings of a bride. And maybe you think that's stretching a little far. Well, let me kind of give you my QED and prove my point. It's true even down to the shoes. In chapter 16, those sandals of fine leather are literally sandals of porpoise skin. That's a bit odd, kind of do that what you will. But for those of you that don't know, the only other place in all of the Old Testament where there is porpoise skin leather is the tabernacle, without any exception. See, the tabernacle is adorned like a bride. And Yahweh, that's the covenant name, the special name, the God of Israel meets his bride as a groom in the tabernacle. And as the tabernacle is situated right in the middle of the camp of Israel, it forms the beating heart of God's people, is God's heart for his people. Leviticus is all about love. And in fact, the word Leviticus is kind of like a, really kind of a banal, kind of lame name for this book. That's our English translation, but the original, the Hebrew word for this book is Vaikra, which is called, he called, God calls to his lover. Well, that's the background point one that I think kind of points us in the direction that Leviticus is not just about holiness, but also about love. But point two, let's survey the book of Leviticus, some of the content. So now, kind of, I think this is our second last flip, go to Leviticus chapter one, verse one which Sarah beautifully read for us before, but let's pick up a few things. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. Now, This is actually the first of 37 addresses from God to Moses. Always that way around. God to Moses happens 37 times. It forms, now our chapter numbers don't fit with it, so it gets a bit confusing, but it forms the backbone of the book. 
And as you read these 37 addresses, it, it, it covers a breathtaking, kind of gobsmacking and discombobulating list of laws. Laws relating to sacrifices we see in chapter 1, how to cut up the bull, the sheep, the goat, how to tear the pigeon, how to burn the fat, how to spray the blood, how to gather the ashes, if you can eat the meat, if you can't eat the meat, how long can you keep it while you can still eat the meat? Laws relating to clean and unclean animals with often really kind of perplexing distinctions. I turn to chapter 11, uh, and I'll give, you a, I'll give you an insight into that. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Say to the Israelites, of all the animals that live on the land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. I had to Google cud. I think cud is like if you've got a stomach, an uh, animal with like multiple stomachs or intestines or something, it's the bit that gets pushed from the one to the other. I think, I think that's how it works. Anyway, verse 4. There are some that only chew the cud or have a divided hoof, but you must not eat them. The camel, camel though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is ceremonially unclean for you. The hyrax, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. The rabbit, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. And the pig, though it has a divided hoof, does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. And it goes on and on and on. There are laws relating to purification after childbirth, relating to skin disease, discharges, mold, harvesting your field, who you can marry, who, who you can and what you cannot have sex with, rules for priests, rules for festivals, for holidays, for hiring and firing, for blaspheming, for harvesting, for cooking, for celebrating. Rules and rules and rules and rules and rules. And the constant refrain over the top, be holy as I am holy. Be holy as I am holy. Be holy as I am holy. No wonder people see this as a list of cumbersome laws, of burdensome precepts, of stultifying and suffocating legislation. God demanding an unreachable level of holiness through an inordinate number of incomprehensible and seemingly arbitrary laws. But if that is your impression, and it is an understandable one, I think, on first gloss, can I say that that misunderstands entirely what is going on? See, the command to be holy comes out of God's love for His bride, His people. God knows that His Israel bride is unholy knows that his white-hot holiness would melt her quicker than a marshmallow at a bonfire. So he gives them a way of being with them, a way of living that kind of reflects their union of marriage. Their holiness is he is holy, a set-apartness. But also he gives them a way of dealing with their sin and defilement, of burning it, of burying it, of casting it out, washing it away, scraping it away, tearing it out, pushing it out, speaking against it. Drowning it, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, in rivers of blood. Sacrifice forming a kind of prophylactic layer so that God can relate to his people. A way of being close while shielding from consequences. You see, God doesn't just say, be holy and leave it at that. That would be a sadistic command. That may as well ask an emu to fly, a fish to walk, a polar bear to become vegan. 
He says, be holy, and then provides them the means of holiness. And, and that is, I think, made crystal clear, not just by the content of the book, but the structure of the book of Leviticus. Because the structure of Leviticus, like lots and lots of Old Testament books, I think every Old Testament book, I'm not convinced, but maybe, its structure is a sandwich. Or, or better get a burger, just because I prefer burgers. And, and everyone knows the way, the way a burger works, is that the centerpiece is the protein at the heart of the burger. The meat in the middle, that's where it's at. The burger is, is arranged around that. And Leviticus is arranged around its slice of meat. So there are 37 speeches, 18 on one side, 18 on the other, and number 19, the heart of Leviticus, is the Day of Atonement. And we're going to do a whole sermon of that in about two and a half months' time, so I won't go into it all. You may know a bit about it, but it's that once-a-year ritual like the only time of the year where one representative from Israel goes into not just the tabernacle, temple tent, but the center, the heart of the tabernacle where God's throne resides. And what does that representative, the high priest, what does he do? He douses, sprays God's throne with the blood of a bull and the blood of a goat. The life of the blood and the, the life of the bull and the life of the goat symbolized in that blood is traded for the life of Israel. They die in Israel's place. So there are countless of sacrifices offered day in, day out, morning and evening. But this is the one, the only one in the year that draws into God's very concentrated presence. It's the one that brings Israel closest to her lover, the most intimate of acts in Leviticus. But I think we have to own the fact. We have to concede that for all this talk of lovers, of bridal chambers and intimacy, there is a remoteness to this all. Think about it. Only one Israelite, once a year, goes to where God actually dwells. And if you've read the scene, if you know the setup, you'll see that he can't really see anything. Very little light gets through into the, the center of the tabernacle. But not only that, there are some candles, the menorah, but that's obstructed by plumes of incense and then actually the glory cloud of God's presence is kind of blinding. And then the high priest is, I think, robed in white like a bride, but then that is splattered and sprayed with blood. And then the rest of Israel, they're encircled around the tabernacle. But they can't really hear anything. They can't see anything. They might, might, if they're close enough, be able to smell what's going on. All this talk of intimacy, but it's not really how we'll do romance, is it? It's kind of more a long-distance relationship than 
an act of two becoming one flesh. But there's a logic, there's a rhyme, there's a reason to this. Because the Day of Atonement, the whole of Leviticus and the, the Levitical system was only ever meant to be a signpost pointing to something better, something greater, something far more intimate, far more immediate, far more permanent. And in the New Testament, and you may have seen this in our Bible studies, in the book of Hebrews, we're told over and over and over again that the whole shebang of Leviticus is a neon sign with a blinking arrow pointing us beyond itself to Jesus. Jesus, the perfect spotless sacrifice, not offered like an endless stream of bulls and goats and lambs, but only once for all time to take away sin. Jesus, the great high priest who offers just once, not day out of day, endlessly on repeat, once his blood for eternal atonement. Jesus, the true tabernacle, God dwelling amongst us, whose death we see in the Gospels tears that curtain that separates God's most holy place from the rest of the temple and the world. Jesus, who in his power gives us his spirit, who sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts. Jesus' sacrifice, high priest, temple, husband, one flesh lover. Paul famously says in Ephesians 5, and you'll hear it in most weddings you go to, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Why are we here this morning? Endless number of reasons. It's my routine because I wanted to, because I didn't want to, because my parents made me, because I had nothing better to do. Maybe I just happened upon the building. But ultimately, we're here as a church because God loves us, called to us, sought us, doggedly pursued his bride. And there are countless times we have spurned his love. We've ignored his advances. We've rejected his affection. Each and every day, in our own way, we spit in the face of the one who holds out his hand tenderly towards us. And yet he still comes. And he does to us what Israel, despite all God's direction, instruction and care, does for us what Israel could never do, become holy. God says to Israel, be holy as I am holy, but says to us, his beloved, his baptized, his spirit indwelt church, he says to you and me, I have made you holy as I am holy. Husbands, verse 25, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. 
the picture of a pure, radiant bride for her groom. Let me make one last point as we, as we close for this morning. I said two poles, holiness and love, how they seem to sometimes, in our experience, they do stand in tension with each other. I think we have a culture which loves love, or its version of love, but has very, very little time for holiness. The only time you rarely hear it used, I think, in the world outside the doors of the church is holier than thou as a criticism of self-righteous people. But let me just say, holiness is not a chore. It's not a burden. It's actually a beautiful thing. It's actually what happens to lovers over time. They become like each other more and more. They start listening to the same music, wearing the same type of clothing, eating the same food, watching the same TV shows, knowing each other's habits, finishing each other's sentiments. Sorry, sentiments and sentences. See, you, you might not know this, but before Mandy, I didn't even drink coffee, which is quite staggering if you know me. You see, our love means we conform to our beloved over time. We harmonize with them. And our holiness is our conformity to God himself, becoming more and more like our husband, our Christ, saying no to sin, pursuing righteousness, dying to self, living for God, for others. I mean, if you've tried this, yes, it is painful. Pursuing holiness, even by the power of the Spirit in our lives, is exhausting, is excruciating, is often a crucifixion. And yet there's a reason why my old pastor called holiness, wholeness. Holiness, wholeness. Because holiness is what it means to cut with the grain of creation, to live the way God wired the world and wired us. Holiness, though never easy, does bring fullness. It brings a peace. It, it sinks our life so that we don't run through it, crunching gears like the world around us. Yes, it means we will be often out of sync with our friends, with our family, with our world. It will bring division between them and us as they mock us, as they scorn and miscomprehend us. But pursuing the holiness that God gives us in Christ brings us back into the rhythm of God's own life. Our hearts now beating in time with His. Our eyes fixed on our beloved. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that the story of Leviticus, the story of your scriptures, is a love story.
a story of how you not only pursued us, but then you do what needs to be done to mean that a loving and holy God can dwell with, dwell within a unholy and unloving people. We are so grateful for that. In Jesus' name. Amen.